and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Welcome, 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 my incredible podcast community. It is time to gather around for another episode of Challenges That Change Us. I want to take a moment to celebrate all of you, the amazing individuals who make this podcast community a force to be reckoned with. You know, as I've been reflecting lately, I can't help but feel this immense gratitude to each and every one of you who show up week in and week out to listen to the pod. Seriously, you are all rock stars. So let me dive into the three things that make me absolutely love and appreciate each and every single one of you. Firstly, your vulnerability. It takes incredible courage to open up, to share your stories, struggles, and triumphs, but you do it. You embrace the vulnerability with open hearts and minds, creating a safe space for growth and transformation. I'm constantly in awe with your willingness to be real and raw. Keep shining your light, guys. Secondly, let's talk about your commitment, feedback, and encouragement. You are the definition of dedicated. Your unwavering support and continuous engagement means the world to me. Your feedback and messages not only uplifts me, but it also encourages our incredible guests. Your words have power to inspire and empower others. So never underestimate the impact you have through your support. So thank you for being such incredible cheerleaders. And let's not forget the power of collaboration within the community. Through this podcast, we've been able to connect amazing individuals with coaches, psychologists, editors, and so much more. It is mind-blowing to see the collective knowledge and network that we have right here. Together, we're building this massive web of support and expertise that is simply extraordinary. So my dear legends, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for being a part of this community, for your presence, your engagement, your energy uplifts, not just the podcast, but also the lives of those who tune in. And I am pretty pumped about the plans that we have for 2024. So get ready to soar even higher, my friends. This week, I have a very special guest and a powerhouse of a woman, Jess Pats. She is a podcast host, a motivational speaker, a mother of four and a wife. Jess has found a beautiful way to inspire others through her story of domestic abuse, survival and loss. She teaches men and women how to redefine life's lowest moments and use them as tools to ignite the future of their dreams. Jess has truly taken something that was meant to break her and allowed it to mold her into a fearless leader. She's been featured on multiple media outlets, including television, radio, podcasts across her country and ours. One of the many ways that she helps others every day is through the I Choose Hope Foundation, an organization dedicated to helping domestic abuse victims and their families in need of emergency assistance. This episode touched my heart and soul in so many ways. Jess not only found a way to leave the abusive relationship, she found a way to have a voice for so many that are silent. Thank you, Jess, for everything you do every day, for giving a voice to the silence, for helping other people along their way, and for coming on this podcast, Challenges That Change Us, and sharing your experience with our precious listeners and community. In this episode, we do discuss sensitive topics related to domestic violence, which may include descriptions of physical, emotional, and psychological abuse. These discussions could be distressing and triggering for some listeners. If you are someone or you know someone in this situation that needs support, please do not hesitate to reach out to the helplines 1-800-RESPECT, 1-800-FULL-STOP, and New South Wales Sexual Violence Helpline, which was formerly known as the New South Wales Rape Crisis Line. We will have all of those details in the show notes because your safety and well-being is our number one priority. 
If you find the content in this episode too distressing, please skip it and we will see you next week. Remember, you are not alone and help is available and we are beside you. Thank you for listening and let's get started on today's incredible episode. Hi, Jess. Welcome to Challenges That Change Us. Thank you so much for coming on so late at night over there. (laughs) Hey, Allie, thank you so much for having me on. It's late for me because I'm old, but I'm so happy to be able to jump on and chat with you. And Jess, I love to start every episode with asking what animal best describes you and what is it about that animal in particular? And it just helps our audience get to know you a little bit, hear your voice, you know, like for you and I that are meeting for the first time. It also gives me a bit of a chance of getting to know you. First of all, I love this question. I don't think I've ever been asked this question in an interview or podcast before. So I I was excited when I saw it and I had to think about it. I go back and forth, I think, between a phoenix or a butterfly, both for very similar reasons, just kind of like this rebirth, but I wish they could do that regularly. So I I lean maybe more towards the phoenix who just rises from the ashes of challenges and struggles and can create this new story for themselves whenever they have an opportunity to. Yeah. And I think we're going to be hearing so much about that today in the conversation that you and I have. Yes. At first I was like, oh, I'm a lion. I'm a lioness. I'm a strong female, which I am to a degree, but I'm also like a complete goober. But I have always related a lot to just the metamorphosis of butterflies and what the phoenix goes through and the opportunity to embrace growth. The older I get has been very transcendent for me personally. I think I need to go out and search for, is there an animal that sits somewhere between a phoenix and a lion? Because it's often the ones that come up. And I think it's that, you know, that protective part of the lioness and the challenge and then being able to stand up in the face of adversity versus that other part that feels like you've kind of grown into a whole new chapter of your life or a whole new segment or, you know, you've grown as a human and a person into this new exciting space. I know. And I really thought, I did think about this question because I was like, I feel like people probably would say Phoenix or maybe even a lion. What's a crazy animal? And then I'm like, oh, they're Australia. I could say koala, but why? I have no idea why that would relate to me in any kind of like actual way. Don't just say like a random animal, like a salamander. I Googled obscure animals that I could just throw at you, but I'm like, no, don't be, don't be a goober right off the bat. Like be normal in the beginning and let them get to know you first. And I love that you said koala because to us, you know, they're our everyday, right? <laughs> like we, we can see them all the time. <laughs> oh gosh. And see, I'm in Cleveland, Ohio in the States. So we have nothing like that here. Nothing. Rarely, even at the zoo, it just depends which zoo we go to. Do we see koalas or kangaroos for that matter? It just kind of depends. Oh, I nearly hit a kangaroo today. I was driving up past the uni, which is like our university in town. And this ruse just shot across the road. (laughs) I was like, ah, stop. Yeah. See, that would be wild to me. (laughs) I love it. You know, we've had a little bit of a conversation and this is a topic that's very close to my heart and I'm really excited to be able to have you on and to hear your story and, you know, I guess for our listeners to have the opportunity to hear someone else's story in this space and what that's been like, what are the challenges been in that space, but also what you've taken away from this experience. And I'm thinking the best place to start might be going right back to the beginning, might be going right back to before even the relationship? Like what did your life look like? Oh gosh. Before you even started the relationship? Yes. So I am a very loud and proud domestic abuse survivor. And I say that now because for a long time it was hard for me to admit. And then also there was so much shame like tangled up and even verbalizing that kind of thing out loud. And I have worked really hard to move past that. So now I am very proud to be able to use my voice and advocate. But I mean domestic abuse was not a part of my life in any kind of regard growing up. Uh, I had a wonderful upbringing. My parents were married for 25 years before my mother passed away. I was the only child. So I was extremely blessed. I wanted for pretty much nothing. I went to private school for 12 years. I knew what a relationship should and shouldn't be. And Sometimes that kind of surprises people because when we look at statistically how abusive relationships continue and what maybe keeps people in it, 
sometimes, oftentimes they've been exposed to it in their upbringing, in their past in some way. And I really had not, but I think kind of the turning point for me was my mother's illness. She was born with a really rare chromosomal disorder. And for a great part of my life, I knew about it. I never understood it. It wasn't this regular like dinner table conversation. I just knew she was sick. She would be in the hospital. These crazy things would happen. And then when I was a senior, I was 17. She got so sick. She was in the ICU in a coma for a long time. And that kind of trauma just threw me over the edge and life didn't feel stable. So by the time I had met my boyfriend, then my abuser at the ripe age of barely 18, I was just served up to him on a silver platter because I felt like I was losing my mother. I was mad at my dad because my mom was sick, which of course makes no sense. It's just how, you know, our adolescent minds work. And I wanted the love. I wanted the attention. I wanted someone to just come in and take me away from the craziness of what that life was like and make me feel like I was now the center of their world. And I mean, that's an abuser's dream come true. Mm, And when you say the center of their world, what did that look like? Oh my gosh. He had almost like unlimited amounts of time for me and was immediately very affectionate and attracted to me. And I was so smart and interesting and different. And he just kind of said all the right things, which at that time wasn't a red flag because I was so young. It's not like I had a lot of experience in relationships. Now, I mean, the love bombing was extreme, but it was also kind of this love bombing at arm's length sometimes because He didn't want me to be, he had to like start that manipulation right from the get-go. So he had me where he wanted me and then he would kind of push me back a little bit and then reel me back in. And I mean, we moved in together, oh gosh, within months of having known each other. And I didn't know it at the time, but he had just gotten out of prison for the very first time when I met him. And he was staying at a friend's house, a mutual friend's house. And that was why I just didn't know. I didn't know why and what his life was like. I didn't question it because he was different and kind of from the other side of the tracks. And I thought, oh, wow, well, this is, and why not? Everything else in my life is completely upside down and doesn't make sense. So I'm just going to try something completely opposite of everything I've ever known and see what that looks like. Mm. And it was fun for a little while. It was fun and it was exciting. And you mentioned the word love bombing. I'm not sure that everyone will know what you mean by that. Are you able to tell us a little bit about what that word means for you? Oh, gosh, I know. it's Sometimes it's overused now, I think, but it really is like this emotional vomit of affection and attention and love. And instead of just saying, I really enjoy spending time with you, it's, oh my gosh, Jess, you are the best girl that I've ever met. And your hair is gorgeous and golden. And we're going to, I want to be with you forever. And I can give you the best life that you've ever wanted. I'm going to treat you better. And it's so sad what your mom is going through. And I'm going to be here with you through it all and love you and protect you. And they target kind of those insecurities that they pick up on really, really quickly, or just weak points in our life. Everybody has them and use those to reassure us that, they're going to take it all away Mm. and they're going to make everything better. And a life with them in whatever capacity is going to be exponentially improved in comparison to what you have right now. When did it start to change? Like were there early signs or only looking back now, can you see? There were definitely early signs. I knew it then. I was just too afraid to allow myself to understand that it wasn't just maybe a one-time thing. The first physical interaction he and I ever had was actually when I was pregnant with our first child. I was maybe three and a half months pregnant and he was intoxicated at the time. And I don't want to trigger anyone and go into specific details, but there is this misconception if you're not familiar with domestic abuse. And I try and say abuse and not violence, even though abuse still indicates violence because domestic violence is not just physical violence, of course. And it doesn't start off with these horrific physical attacks or assaults, because if it did, nobody would ever stay. By the time he very first got physical, we had been together over a year. 
We were living together. I was pregnant with his child. I was 19. I was very young, but I was in it. We were going to have a family together. And so he had, he was intoxicated. I went into, get into the driver's seat of the car, of course, being sober, which he did not like and yanked me out of the car by my hair. There was no blood and guts or craziness. I hit my head on a gravel drive, which hurt tremendously, but I was in such a state of shock that I remember sitting in the back seat afterwards because somehow I was in the back seat and then he drove us home thinking this, this isn't happening. Like I know better. My dad would kill him. He would kill me if I, he knew this was happening. I know this isn't okay. And then you're in shock and you're kind of confused. And then I, you get really angry. And then by the time we got home and I can, I tried to confront not just him, but his dad, who we were staying with at the time. And that was kind of this real pivotal moment in my abusive relationship because it was very early on, the first time any physical abuse had ever taken place. I told someone right away and they dismissed it instantaneously and said, like, let me, let me look at your head. I mean, you're not bleeding. You don't need stitches. It sounds like he just had too much to drink. Maybe you're being dramatic. It's fine. Like it just happens. And I thought, you're the adult. Maybe I am crazy. And of course, then that's what he told me, my partner, my boyfriend at the time, you're being dramatic. It wasn't that bad. You tripped. I didn't pull that hard. And it's much easier for our psyches to accept that it's somehow our fault that early on, instead of accepting that the father of my unborn child just yanked me from a car by my hair, throwing me down into a gravel drive in front of other people. That's like, you can't even let your mind and body absorb it sometimes. So that was the very first moment. There were signs and it just kind of continued to progress from there on. And I can imagine too, it's so much bigger than that in the sense that it's not just, did that just happen? It's like my whole life that I've just planned. What does it actually mean if I step into this space and say, that's not okay and I'm going to make a different decision here. And we we get taught from such a young age to forgive, to forgive, to forgive. Like, you know, that it's so much more complex than just an incident happening and us having to kind of integrate it into our world and be like, because you don't know it's going to happen again, right? Right. They promise it won't usually. It's not going to happen. I didn't do anything wrong. It was just, oh my gosh, it was an accident or you made me do it. So just don't make me angry again and it won't happen again. And I was raised very religious. I was not raised around divorce or really even having a child before you got married. So I was determined to make that relationship work because I was young and we were going to have a child and we were not married. We were not engaged. Usually by the point physical abuse starts, the psychological warfare that has happened. I mean, two plus two didn't equal four to me at that point in my life. It was, I ate when he said we could. And if he wanted dinner, I made dinner. And I I was immersed in his world. I was completely away from most of my friends and family. I did what he did when he wanted to. So it's that much scarier then to think about leaving and really putting your foot down and saying, no, this isn't okay. Because you oftentimes don't have the support system that you did when you first met that person. And as you just mentioned then, it wasn't that isolated incident. Like you just started to, to describe some of the things that were happening before and I was thinking that, you know, was there signs of emotional abuse and verbal abuse and isolation leading into that incident? Yeah, you know, I try and recall that and it's such a blur. For reference, I'm 37 now, so this was when I was 18, 19 years old, But it was really controlling, the controlling behavior, I remember. And it was, you're going to get a job where I want you to get a job, but the money has to be in my account. You don't need your own account because I'm the man and I'm going to handle this for us kind of thing. And I mean, my mother was still alive at this point, but still battling really a terminal chromosomal illness in and out of the hospital. Sometimes I didn't even have a cell phone or a landline to be able to reach them. I remember having to walk around to the corner store, call my parents on a payphone to see if my mom was in or out of the hospital, and then ask permission 
to take his car or if he would drive me to go to the hospital and see my mom, who was, for all intents and purposes, my best friend. When she passed in 2007, I read her eulogy and she was my soulmate. That's what I talked about. So it was this to have allowed anyone to distance my relationship from her of all people, especially while she was so sick now sounds completely crazy, but I didn't even know I had the opportunity to push back at that point. Cause I wanted to be a good wife or mother to be, and just kind of follow his lead. So the, I mean, the controlling behavior really from the get go was there, but I think I don't know. I almost think I sought that out because my relationship with my father was so fractured in my lack of understanding with my mom's illness that I wanted someone to kind of be controlling and be a father figure and tell me what to do and protect me so that when it started happening at first, it didn't seem abnormal. I was a teenager. And then when it just escalated to the point of what is happening, I didn't even know how to verbalize it because it had been going on so long. And those moments where you were sitting there thinking, what is happening? Are you able to tell us about some of those moments? Oh, gosh, yeah. It's so confusing because you feel like you're in a twilight zone. That's how I remember feeling. I remember even the week we lost my mom, which was a horrific time in my life for obvious reasons. And I was actually pregnant with our second child at that time. But I just remember thinking, this is my life. I've just lost the most important person to me on the planet. And this is the relationship that I'm in. But I, I know that it's not okay. But now I definitely can't tell my dad because he's heartbroken. He just lost his soulmate of 30 years. So it almost, when I would sit there and think about it and feel like I was in this twilight zone and how did I get here, this immense amount of shame would take over. And I felt like... I was even less capable the longer I stayed with him to tell anybody else the reality of my relationship because then somehow it was going to be my fault that I had stayed for so long. Since even on that week, most of my family lives out of state from where we live. My parents were both born and raised hours away from where I currently lived. So they met him for the first time And of course, at a funeral, people are delightful. And he was the doting, very supportive, then fiance, helping me walk up and down the church steps. And you want that to be true. I wanted it to be true so much that I just kind of relished in everyone saying, my gosh, we're so happy for you. He seems wonderful. You've like beaten the odds of young pregnancy and you guys are going to make it. We can't wait for the wedding. So it was almost this elective choice to be delusionally hopeful and live in that kind of sense of denial that, I mean, other people think he's great. Maybe he's great. Maybe I just bring out the worst side of him. We're going to figure it out and he'll stop. He won't feel the need to do those kinds of things to me anymore. As I'm listening to you share your story, I'm hearing those lines that I've heard so many women say, things like, maybe I bring out the worst in him. You know, maybe it's me. Like, obviously, I've got a role to play in this. You know, that 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 language and that dialogue inside your head on repeat becomes a reality, right? Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, you lose. I lost all sense of what reality was uh, towards the end. I mean, we got legally married in an enormous church wedding. I had bridesmaids. It was about a year after we had lost my mom, so it was very fresh, our Our grief was immense. It was huge, but you just kind of keep pushing forward because I really believe that if I loved him hard enough and I was a good enough wife and I did the things that I knew he wanted me to do, at some point this switch would magically flip and he wouldn't feel the need to abuse me anymore. And it would just be fine. He would be the man that I met all those years ago. And this would just be like a distant memory. And it, I mean, again, it is like this elective choice to kind of be in denial because the, the longer you're in that situation, I feel like it, it, it becomes harder and harder to see through the fog and imagine what it would look like when you actually leave. And how, how would you do that? Where would you go? Do you have money? Do you share kids? 
Who's going to support you? Who's going to believe you? Are there resources in your area? All of those things definitely weighed heavily on me. And once we got legally married, having been raised Catholic, I just, I also didn't want to disappoint God. It was for better, for worse. And he used that against me in a huge way. I didn't even know, honestly, until about two years ago that it was spiritual abuse. I talked about it sometimes, but I didn't even understand that it had a name because it was always, well, this is for better, for worse, just, this is just the worst part. What are you going to do? You can't divorce me. Where are you going to go? You don't have any money. You don't have a career. You're going to support two kids in diapers. We're married. This is forever. And he would kind of like dangle these religious things above my head that he knew really mattered. So then again, when you're alone with your thoughts or when it does get physical and you reach, I would, I would reach the point even before we got married, I gave my rings back. I said, I'm done. Who are you? I'm not marrying you. And I meant it. I meant it vigorously when I would say that to him. But then that cycle would continue and the honeymoon phase would kick in. And he wasn't a big apologizer. That was not his thing. It wasn't, I'm so sorry. I love you. I promise it'll never happen again. It was, okay, if you calm down, you know, if you would have taken out the trash, if you, he was, it was always my fault. If I wouldn't have done A, he wouldn't have had to do B. So then we could eliminate this result from happening again. But then, you know, I would get to go shopping or see my friends or do something. That was his way of apologizing is giving me something tangible and being nicer. And the abuse would hold off for a little bit. And I'd be like, okay, here we go. It's going to, it is going to be different. I just know it. He's going to change until eventually you believe that it's not going to change. And I think sometimes there's a misconception out there that the abuse, the physical abuse, I mean, we've, we've already mentioned there's so many different types of abuse, whether that be verbal, emotional, spiritual, physical. But I think sometimes there's a misconception out there that it happens all the time, every day. And for some people it does, but for many it doesn't. For many there's this like build, things can be fabulous, mm-hmm. fantastic even, like amazing, and then oh, yeah. crashing down. Oh, absolutely. And even, I mean, even I got to the point where I felt like I, I mean, I knew the monster that kind of hid inside of him. And even though it terrified me, I didn't know that there was better out there. I didn't believe that I was worth any better anymore. So even though his monster scared me, I kind of knew how to tame it. And if I did certain things, I could elongate that honeymoon period and we could really enjoy each other because there are positive, you fell in love with that person for a reason. Something attracted me to him. So we would try and go back to the beginning and do those kinds of things. Or I would watch him with our children and try and force this kind of fake family mentality and on the four of us. And you just pray or, I mean, whatever your background is, hope, wish that eventually those things will just cease all of a sudden, like, you know, they're going to have a lobotomy and not want to do these things anymore. And unfortunately it's the opposite. The longer you're there, the escalation is clear statistically, and it will continue to get worse and worse and worse. You can have years of no physical abuse, but when it comes back at, I mean, it's an iron fist. Just listening to you there, I also heard you say then, you know, if I did X, the honeymoon phase would last long. Like even even now, like still hearing that language and hearing oh. that part that's just gets so ingrained, you know, so ingrained. Oh, gosh, yeah. And, you know, what's so unique a little bit about my story, it, well, it's all our story. I've, we shared two children together. They witnessed abuse and unfortunately were abused significant amounts but he remarried their dad after I left him and we're battling for custody and going back and forth. And I did the thing. I left the abuser. I told the whole world what he was doing and that he was hurting myself and my children. My children eventually spoke up and said he was hurting them. Nobody did anything until he almost killed his second wife. So we have this crazy arc and it was almost a decade to the day from when I physically left my marriage to when his second marriage ended. 
but I think she says the first several years of their relationship, there was no physical abuse. She knew I told people I was abused, but I was crazy. I was the crazy first wife who was spiteful and vindictive and tried to keep his kids from him and lied to the courts. And that worked for a long time because I didn't have photographic evidence of my abuse. I only went to the police one time which was actually after I had left him in exchange with the kids, he strangled me with our daughter right in between us. I had his handprints on my neck. My friends forced me to go to the police station. I was still very much not wanting to do that because at that, I remember, I vividly remember saying, I don't want to ruin his life. And that was part of it, but I was terrified of the retaliation. I just thought no matter what I did, no matter who got a hold of him, he would find me and it would be so much worse. But he was arrested and released the same day. We went to court. He had a $50 fine and walked out of the courthouse. It was nothing for putting his hands around my neck in front of our children. And leaving marks, even with that evidence there, you know? like It's astonishing. And his second wife, I mean, it wasn't his wife then. She was in the home. She was upstairs. So she heard things. She didn't see things with her own eyes. But that's how manipulative these people, abusers, not these people, they're master manipulators. She heard me yelling. She heard my children yelling. And he still somehow convinced her that it was all false, that I had choked myself. I made it up and she stayed with him and then married him. And he genuinely almost killed her in the many of the ways she was abused they're just torturous. The escalation that happened, strangulation was a huge tactic of his, but you know, I got strangled with his hand. She got strangled with a belt. So the escalation, you don't always get to see that with two women who then get to talk and compare notes, if you will, and share their stories and see the similarities And it's terrifying because it happens all the time right underneath the noses of our judicial system here in America. Not a whole lot is done often. And it's so often done behind closed doors where people don't see. And so when someone does come and speak out, it's he say, she say, you know, and if there hasn't been the physical evidence, if there's not the text messages to your friend or the phone calls or the marks on your body or the photographs or the, it really does come down to he say, she say. And like you said, they're master manipulators. So their, their storytelling is actually phenomenal usually, you know. Mm-hmm. They're very intelligent people. An ability to convince, to stand up and have people believe what they're saying. It's a chess game. I always felt like... After I left him, once I made the decision to leave and I left, it was this, like you were playing chess with Bobby Fischer. I mean, I there I couldn't rise to the level of his ability. He was always eight steps ahead of me. And I, I thought, well, I have the truth on my side. So of course we're going to be protected and it will go our way. My children have to have to be protected. And unfortunately... The truth only goes so far. It's about what you can prove and who can tell the better story, just like you said. And I mean, my ex-husband coached Little League. He went into schools and volunteered for parties. He was not someone that most people would look at and think, oh, well, this guy probably does this to his wife at home behind closed doors. People loved him. They were shocked when they really found out the truth. And when you think back through those years, what for you was the hardest part, do you think? <sighs> deciding to leave for sure was the hardest part. One of the hardest parts, actually deciding to leave. I'm very stubborn and it, it worked in my favor in that way. Statistically, it can take people up to seven times of leaving and going back and leaving and going back to actually stay gone. However, once I it was very hard to come to the conclusion and the decision to leave. But once I I did decide that, you couldn't have convinced me otherwise. I met with a counselor. I got assistance with food and insurance. And I was determined to get out no matter what. And it, he couldn't have said anything really to convince me. I told him that I was leaving him, which was not smart. <laughs> that's not, that's not advised. 
but I was stubborn and proud and said, I'm done. This is not going to happen anymore. We are leaving on this day at this time. Thankfully I did. I was extremely blessed to have a small group of people who kind of caught wind of what was going on and helped us leave before the day I told him we were going to, which I have no doubt helped keep us safe. But then really, I feel like it's not talked about enough. It's just the after, the life after abuse, especially if there are kids in the mix. Without a doubt, the most torturous part of that experience was having done the thing that everyone told me to do by leaving the abuse and now having to share the most precious things on planet earth with this abusive monster, which were my children. I had to willingly let him be along with them and trust him when I didn't trust him as far as I could throw him. That was an absolute nightmare that I fought for almost a decade. Mm, And you're so right. It's not spoken about. Yeah. Really at all. No, it's leaving is hard. Do not get me wrong. And staying gone is it's, it's very challenging for a lot of people. It is hard. You just have to know that you love yourself more than you love the convenience sometimes of being, because I mean, some they hold all the financial resources. Maybe you come from a beautiful home with a wonderful car and all of these other amenities, if you will, that you can't provide for yourself. You have to really love yourself and understand you deserve so much better. And that has to fuel you more. But it's it doesn't just end, even if you're not physically being abused. Usually there's some kind of psychological or emotional abuse that continues even after you physically leave an abusive situation. They will, you know, trash talk you to your friends or your family or your coworkers. And that's victimizing all over again. It can be really challenging. It's almost like grief, I say. Grief morphs and it changes as you grow and time passes. And so does the abuse. Like grief, abuse never leaves you. And I encourage people to embrace that because when we try and hide that part of our life, when you have really survived, you've survived abuse. It's not something to just bury down inside because then we're enabling all of that fear and that'll eat you alive. So understanding that it's going to be a part of your life in one way or another. I mean, I am in a wonderfully healthy marriage, but my now husband who wouldn't hurt a fly can say my name in a certain way or come up behind me in the right light. And it, it, I have flashbacks. I remember things that I wish I could forget and I'm not ever going to forget them. I just learn how to deal with them in a healthier manner and how to really use those low, painful moments to fuel my success and be able to help other people in a bigger way. And I know that's something that I spoke about, Jess, in my episode was around the body remembers. And there's stuff that happens in my world now that someone can do something and it just invokes a whole body response. Even if it's the safest person in my world, I can still have this massive fear response come up in all shapes and sizes like I never know how it's going to come up but it's like footsteps or a fridge door opening or a car door slamming or just these tiny little or smells and it's like even though there's been a lot of work done that can still be something that triggers that still surprises and shocks me to this day oh my gosh yeah and it really is not talked about nearly frequently enough. And I think you just take away that power because while we were fighting in court for 10 years over custody and shared parenting and residential and all of these different things, and I was trying to keep my kids safe, I realized, I mean, no one in my life really knew what my marriage had been, very few people. And I wanted to hide it. I didn't want anyone to know. I wanted them to look at me as this like accomplished single mom. And then I was in another relationship and look, it's my happily ever after. And my life is perfect. It's perfect. You don't need to know about this stuff. But I gave him so much power because when I laid my head down at the end of the night, I was still grasping for air, remembering what would happen in my marriage. And the thought of my kids still being around him and Now I'm not in the house to protect them and who's looking out for them. And 
I mean, it killed me. I was a shell of myself for genuinely almost a decade. I was in this victim mentality for 10 years of my life without realizing it. I thought I was surviving, but I was just fighting to stay alive. I was treading water in a storm that I wasn't really aware existed at the time. And Jess, I want to ask about that moment and and what life is like now. But before we do, there's a couple of things that I think we haven't asked about. And and one of them was you've talked about when you finally decided to leave. And you said once you made that decision, it was like there was no going back. But did something happen for you to make that decision? Was there a final straw or was it compounding over time? Yeah, uh, it was definitely both of those compounded over time after we got married and I had loved him so much and things still didn't improve. The abuse just went from bad to really nightmare status because he thought he had me right where he wanted me. So he could do whatever he wanted. He could cheat with other women in front of my face. What was I going to do? He could hit me harder in places where other people would notice. And I, he knew I would lie for him. And it wasn't until one of the last physical interactions he and I had, he had pinned me down on our steps. And I had one of my kids on my lap. They were both still in diapers. I was trying to scoop up the babies and get behind a door to hide from him. And I ended up with one of them on my lap and he punched me in the jaw so hard. It, it, I mean, it broke my jaw. I didn't know it at the time. I didn't go to the doctor. I didn't call the police after this, but it hit me after he had done that. And then he's pulling me by my hair up the steps. I looked at my kids' faces and I knew that they knew, even at three and two, what was happening. And they were terrified. And I could hear them crying and reaching out for me. And for whatever reason, in those moments, it just clicked that one of these days, it's going to be them. And what if my child had stood up and it was their face on the other end of that fist instead of mine. And I would never forgive myself if I didn't do everything in my God-given ability to prevent that from happening. And it was even more, I didn't think he was going to haul off and physically hurt my toddlers in a terrible way. But what happens when they're older and kids talk back and they don't listen or they try and I have a son. What if he tries to defend his mom? I couldn't live with that possibility. So that was it for me. My kids really, I saw it almost through their eyes and I didn't know how. I had no resources. I moved out with $62 in my pocket. All of our belongings were in trash bags in the back of pickup trucks. I didn't have a bed. I didn't have kitchen table or a microwave, but none of that mattered. By the time I understood if I don't do everything I can to show them this is not going to be their life forever, then nobody else will. No one's going to come in and save us. No one, no, my dad didn't even know that I was being abused. He didn't know what my marriage was. He thought he had walked me down the aisle and given me away to a God-fearing, loving man who vowed to protect me. He had no idea what was going on until I said, I'm leaving him. This is what's happening. Can you help? And again, I'm exceedingly grateful that I had anybody in my life to call and say that to, and that he could help in some kind of way and didn't ask questions until years and years later. I was extremely Mm -hmm. lucky. And it can be a huge shock for people when you, if it's something that hasn't been spoken about for years and then you come out and say, this is happening. It's like you're describing a whole scenario that they're like, that's not what I know and what I've experienced and what I've seen. So it's almost like you can really understand why people feel like they're not going to be believed. And then there's that, you mentioned it before, the trash talking. So not only is there that scenario where you're trying to explain to a loved one or a family friend or, or a close friend that what they know to be true is not true and that there's all this ugliness that sits beside it. But then at the other side, walk around the corner and there's someone else standing there just saying they're lying, they're crazy, that didn't happen and don't listen to them and, you know, showing up in the community by the sounds of it, you know, he was showing up in the community and doing all these things and so people are experiencing him in a loving and a generous and a friendly way. It's like for someone that's an outsider, it's like what am I seeing here? This does not make sense. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. And it's, 
after I left, I just knew, I mean, I cut a lot of people out of my life. Again, I was the only child. All of my family lived out of state, but especially because I hadn't even told my dad, there was kind of this ripple the night that I left and the 24 hours that followed with calls from family because I was so young, because they had no idea. Rightfully so, they were concerned. But a lot of very close people in my life told me it was a huge mistake and that it couldn't possibly be that bad. And there was no way I was going to be able to support my children on my own. What were you thinking? You got married for a reason. You stay married for that reason. I got married because of fear. That's, that's, that's why I got married. And I, got, I did not get married because I loved him at that time. I got married out of absolute fear and a last ditch effort to show him that he didn't have to hurt me anymore. And so I somehow had an understanding even then. It wasn't like a forever. I wasn't going to talk to my family or friends again. I just knew in that moment I had to surround myself only with people who empowered that choice and understood it. And even if they didn't understand it, they accepted it. And they didn't require me to prove that the worst moments of my life took place. And even if that was only two people, that was okay. That it, That's all that I needed. I couldn't, I had to tune out as much of the outside noise and doubt as possible. And that's what I always encourage people to, you don't have to prove yourself to anyone. It is very hard for some people to understand. And at some point you can be empathetic to those concerns or that questioning, but it's not appropriate. You have been through battle. And you, the last thing you need is someone asking you to show them your battle scars. And you mentioned earlier, I just want to circle back to this because we kind of jumped over and I think it's a really important part of the conversation is you said, I remember telling him I was leaving and that was not smart. And I guess, can we just open up that conversation? It sounds like you've sat in this DV world for a long time now. And so, you know, with my background as well, I know how dangerous it can get, you know, in that moment. It can be some sometimes the most dangerous moment. Oh, yeah. I mean, now knowing what I know as an advocate and how important safety plans are and life-saving that safety plans are, the audacity that I had at 22 years old to just be like, yeah, I'm taking your kids and I'm leaving and you're no good for me. Bye-bye. And I just thought that was going to fly for some reason. I was so... I just switched through these different levels of delusion. I thought, well, he doesn't love me. I mean, you're you're beating the crap out of me. You're treating me like garbage. You don't love me. You don't want me here. You're not, why are you going to try? But that is really, like you mentioned, some of the most, from a physical perspective, the most dangerous times in an abusive situation when they feel like they have lost complete control over their victim. They will do anything to regain that control. And I just lucked out in all honesty, because it was after he had punched me in the face. I looked like Quasimodo. I mean, I couldn't open my job all the way to eat. I was lying to my coworkers and saying that my, my little son, who was two or three at the time, had like thrown a ball and hit me in the head hard enough to somehow do this damage. And a friend of mine I talk about her publicly often. Her name is Karen. I always say be this kind of Karen. She was brave enough to speak up and basically say bull crap. I know that didn't happen. I've seen other things. You need to tell me what's going on. And so I did right in the middle of a workout class. I told her that my husband punched me in the face, that he's done all of these other things. And it's okay because I told him I'm leaving and we're just going to move out on this day and it'll be fine. And thankfully, She was just an angel for one, but she had some experience with domestic violence and knew that that was not a smart choice. And she helped kind of rally some troops to allow us to leave before that moment happened or else I really, there's no way he was just going to allow me to leave with our children. It would have ended horribly. It's very dangerous to do that. And now I know the importance of things like a safety plan. Even if you get to the point where you know you're going to leave and you have to leave, safety plans are just life-saving because your body kind of goes into this automatic muscle memory moment because you've had these plans in place and you know who you're going to call 
and the bags are packed. This person is helping. You're going here and you don't have to panic or think about it because it's all mapped out for you. And where I was at the time, I just wasn't aware of resources to get that information or learn what that path even really looked like. And I think too, you know, when I'm speaking to people in that situation, I say the safety plan, if we start it now, you don't have to act on it as well, but you don't want to be caught in a moment without it. So I think by the time, and your story is a really good example. So often people, when they're ready to leave, they make the decision in a split moment and they want to get out. And so that safety planning prior to that is what you're talking about. You can, that muscle memory, it's like, right, well, I have a plan. I'm going to use it now. And it might take days, months, years, decades to leave. But if you're listening to this and it's resonating with you, if you do nothing else other than have a conversation with someone or start your safety planning, starting to learn what that could look like and what are some things. I don't know, Jess, in hindsight, when you look back now, what would some of the things be that you'd consider in a safety plan? I, oh. You need, I, I, I don't know, I have a hard time saying you need people, but if you have the ability to have people help you, it is imperative because this is, it is a battle. It is war that you are exiting and it's not as simple as waving the white flag and they're going to allow you to leave. So if you are in a position, it doesn't have to be friends or family. There are advocates, there are therapists, there are ministers, there are people out there who are willing, the police, to help you if you have access to anyone like that. You don't have to walk through things like this alone. Somebody will understand and be there for you, and it might be someone that you never thought would. I always encourage people to try and have somebody else there. But first and foremost, just keep your mouth shut. (laughs) Do as I say, not as I did. You don't need to tell them anything because it's like this slippery slope of you have decided to leave or maybe eventually and you start the safety planning and you feel empowered again and you're making choices for yourself, for your safety, for your future that they are completely not a part of. And at least for me personally, clearly, because that's what I did, you sometimes want to brag and be like, okay, well, I have this plan and I know what I want to do. And like, okay, do what you want to do, but I'm good. I've got it covered. And it's just, it's not worth it. Make sure have, have a bag. You don't have to have all of your belongings. So few things matter in the long run, I promise. And even if it's, you take one outfit at a time and hide it at a friend's or in a safe locker at the gym. You can do things piece by piece. The really important step that I think a lot of people forget, I forgot, is your documents, your social security numbers, your birth certificates, bank account information. If you are married, investments, retirement funds, because once you are married or if there are kids involved, no one's going to willingly offer up that information. And if you can, again, it is slightly easier in the day and age of smartphones with cameras everywhere to take pictures of these important documents, make copies, scan them, and do it piece by piece. Don't overwhelm yourself. You don't, Rome wasn't built in a day. Again, you have to assess your safety level, but if you have the ability to stay calm and formulate a plan and do things bit by bit, it it just eliminates some of the chaos and it eliminates maybe them being alerted to you acting differently. You're going through filing cabinets or talking to people that you wouldn't normally talk to. Of course, you need to have a place to go, whether that's a shelter or, you know, you're going to be driving to the police station or right to the hospital, to a friend's house. And it, it needs to be a safe place. It doesn't, it can't be a mutual friend. You have to be very careful who you do trust. That's the other big piece of advice because if nobody knows, and even if you have mutual friends that you think are just going to be so supportive, things like this can be very shocking. And if someone has a hard time understanding, you need to make very, very sure that they're not going to go right back and tell your abuser what you're telling them and what you're planning. So trust only people that you're very sure. And sometimes impartial people are the safest in those situations, but don't just leave with no destination. And I think to add on to that, sometimes 
for example, if you're going to a mutual friend, they may think they're helping by making the phone call to say that you're there. Like their intention may not be to go behind your back and be malicious. Their intention may be to do good, but they may never have experienced or had exposure to a DV relationship before and they may not understand the dynamics that are at play how serious it can be, you know. So I think that's, you know, a really important piece to the puzzle. And the other thing I was thinking when you were talking then, when you were talking about photocopying documents and, you know, also thinking about where you store that stuff because it can also escalate the violence if they find your plan or your documents or the bank account you opened. Or, you know, we we helped someone the other day go and open up a bank account and there was to be no mail to the home. There was to be no emails to the email. So it's those sorts of things. It's like you mentioned it. It's it's you know your safety level. Trust that. Trust that and think through that. Like what what do I need here and how do I keep myself safe and and what's one step I can take? Those are really good tips. And I mean, it's just the planning and having the ability to do that in a calm state versus a frantic emergency where you have no choice but to leave can be so beneficial. And I don't know, I don't travel ever outside of the States one day, one day, but we have cash back here. So if I go to pay with my groceries with a credit card, you can opt for cash back. And that doesn't always show up or flag anything on your bank account right away. It can be $5 here, $10 there, and then you have cash in hand, but be careful where you store it, where you put it. So you can start saving for yourself if you don't have access to funds in that kind of way. Because I know that's a huge hindrance for a lot of people when you don't have the financial resources to leave. Just do it one piece at a time. And you mentioned that like even if you do have the financials to leave, make sure you know the financials because they will get hidden very quickly, I'd imagine. Oh, absolutely. The other thing I think like to put a bit of analogy on this, to put it in a very different way, it's like we plan nine months for birth, right? From the moment we know we're pregnant, we plan about birth and having a baby and, you know, imagine if we had no planning, no conversations, no insight, no education, and we just went into labor. It would feel chaotic. You wouldn't know what was happening to your body. You wouldn't know what to expect. You wouldn't have any idea. You wouldn't have the support people around you. So this is something, you know, that when you do plan it, it's like going into labor and birth. You can't predict what's going to happen, but you can have some strategy behind it. I love that analogy. It really, have you ever seen the movie Enough with Jennifer Lopez? No. It's, it, she leaves an abusive marriage. I mean, it's a movie, so it's very theatrical and she like just becomes this ultimate warrior woman and gets self-defense classes and then goes back and seeks revenge and you know, has this whole plan in the dark that she can just with a blindfold work her way around his house. So that's extreme, but she had the ability to take time to put a plan together and it's incredibly beneficial. And I, the other thing I try and prepare, and I just, you know, I'm a mom and I had two kids and that was the hardest part for me. Document everything Because even though right now you are married to this person and there may still be happy moments and hopeful moments, they're not real, unfortunately, a lot of the times. And you will need to be prepared to show if there is no physical evidence, your word against theirs. So even if it's, I mean, I had a planner that was color coded with things. So my, each child had a different color and interactions that were, uh, had one color and then red was really bad. That way, when it escalated to the point that I left, even though it was his word against mine, and I learned this the hard way years after I had left, having this consistent documentation of those interactions can help. And it can just show that you have taken the time to put this plan together and show what what has happened and how, cause it's really hard to remember all of those chaotic exchanges a year after the fact, just help yourself out in that way. Documentation is everything. If it becomes a legal situation. When you are out of the situation, so often the memories become so blurred for a whole number of reasons. One is that you have to push them down so far so that you can actually still be in the relationship, right? And we spoke about earlier around that warped sense of reality and then time, you know, on top of that. And then new emotions and new experiences, like there's there's a whole number of reasons how those memories can get so blurred. And also in these relationships, it isn't 
they did this and that was it. It's never that simple. It's never that linear. And there's always, if only we could put words around the energy and the emotion that was in the room in a way that we can put around a fist hitting a face. Mm-hmm. I it's think it's true. really challenging. Mm. Very, very. And even it's a, if it's your own personal journal, it can be helpful because again, so many people, his second wife included before he almost took her life, she moved out, had her own place. She was over it and he still convinced her to come back in and she almost lost her life. So I always say, I wish I had had a journal that I could pull back to when you felt a moment of weakness or maybe they're being so nice, maybe they've changed and you can recall what it actually felt like in your own words for them to have been the true version of themselves. So there are just multiple different reasons why that can be really, really helpful. Refresh your memory because it's hard and it's, it's traumatizing to go back to those really painful places, but it can protect you sometimes. We've had a very big conversation and I often say this with my guests and I really do mean it from the bottom of my heart. It's really hard to put words around a life experience or a lifetime of experiences in an hour. So we have talked about a few things, but I guess there will be parts of this story that we haven't touched on and And I'm wondering if there's something there for you that we haven't shared yet that might be important for our listeners or important for you to share today. Absolutely. One of the biggest things to remember is it is a marathon, not a sprint in terms of getting safe and staying safe. It doesn't happen overnight. The abuse didn't start overnight. It took me 10 years to really, I was physically removed from it. My kids were still caught in the middle, but it took a decade for us to actually be safe when he was arrested and sentenced to 20 years in prison the night that he almost killed his second wife for us to actually be safe. And I certainly lost hope. I lost all faith in anything in that amount of time. I felt like I was losing every single battle, but I was determined for something to give in order to really continue to keep my kids safe and get them out of that situation. And now, Jess, what does your life look like now? Oh, night and day difference. If you would have told me even, oh man, six years ago that this is what my life would be now. I'm happily, I technically newlywed, we just celebrated our one year wedding anniversary to a wonderful man who's actually also a domestic violence survivor, which I love and never thought that I would find somebody else who connected and understood what it was like in that way. We have four magnificently beautiful children who are healthy and happy, and I get to spend my time now sharing my story professionally to help others understand who maybe don't have a voice and maybe will never have a voice. There's hope. There's always hope out there. Mm, And if people want to get in touch with you, Jess, how would they find you? Oh gosh, you can find me on almost any social media, but Facebook and Instagram, I'm on the most at Jess, J-E-S-S-P-A-T-Z. Reach out to me on my website, www.jesspatz.com. I speak all over. I help people learn how to speak themselves. Public speaking is an art. However, when you're doing it from a place of pain and trauma, turning that into wisdom to share with other people, that can be really challenging. So I love helping others understand how to change and craft their message in order to really touch the hearts of people around them. And if you reach out to me, please tell me where you heard me, how you found me. Uh, I'd love to connect with you guys. Thank you so much, Jess. We'll pop all of that in the show notes, but for coming on and sharing your story, for finding a voice for so many that may, as you said, never have a voice and that's okay too, but also for carving out a space where people that do want to find their voice can come and have a conversation with someone that can help hold their hand along the way and give them some insights into what they've experienced and things and lessons they've learned along the way. So thank you so much for giving up your time today and coming on. Thank you so much, Ali, for having me and creating this safe space where we can have some tough conversations but make others feel less alone in the process. I really have enjoyed it. And I just realized I'm so involved in our conversation that I completely forgot to ask who or what in your world truly makes your belly laugh. So Jess, I'm just like so wrapped up, but really I love finishing our podcast and asking our guests that. Is there someone or something in your world? 
Okay, this is going to be really cliche and probably ridiculous, but I told you I'm a goober. And when I'm stuck in a scroll on any, well, maybe TikTok, the videos that are like the scare videos where people jump and lose their mind and scream bloody murder at nothing or fall, I will laugh at the fall. I can't help it. If it happens in front of me, I will laugh. My kids mock me because they can hear me upstairs alone in my room snorting and laughing. And it just gives me pure, because I'm that person. If you say boo, I will like jump six feet in the air. And I, I it just, it does it for me every single time. That's how I unwind. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Completely laughing. <laughs> <laughs> the kids can hear you all the way from downstairs. Thank you, Jess. Thank you for your time today. Thanks so much, everyone who has listened. What a woman and what an episode. There were so many times I wanted to jump through the screen and give Jess the biggest heartfelt cuddle. Don't hold this episode to yourself. If you know someone going through a domestic violence relationship or has come out the other side, maybe, just maybe this is the conversation that they may need to hear to navigate their way through. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. And I will see you all next week with uh, our guest, Sophie Scott, an award-winning broadcaster and investigative journalist. And this is one not to be missed. So tune in next Monday morning and have an awesome week. Thank you, everyone, for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode. 